What All right. I- we want to give a special shout out to our patrons. You are making possible this work that we do. And we are eternally grateful in all the hardest and softest ways. Isabel and I will take turns saying the names of the people who have contributed. Elaine, I cannot <laughs> tell you how amazing everything that you've given this podcast is. <laughs> and I think you know to what I'm referring. <laughs> Kathleen, you're the best. Kathleen. Kathleen, do you go by Kat? Katie. Or Katie. Let us know so we can give you a proper shout out next time. Audrey, you're a dream boat. <laughs> and we really appreciate everything that you're doing here at Womance. Catherine, more like Casherin, because you gave us money. <laughs> Laura. Laura, I think you know what you mean to us. You know what, Laura? Shout out to your parents who chose not to name you Lauren. There are Agreed. too many Laurens. <laughs> but also, Laura, we really appreciate the personal touch you offer. Mm-hmm. Also, if you are named Lauren, you should donate to the Patreon specifically. <laughs> you like what we do, Lauren. Allison! Allison. It's hard for me not to do that Elvis Costello song, but I have a feeling you hate that Allison, so I'm not going to do it. Jocelyn! Thank you so much, Jocelyn. Jocelyn. The lady from A Knight's Tale, and I love that name. I agree. It's a lovely name. Even if you are my secret doppelganger. If you married Ryan Gosling, your name would be Jocelyn Gosling. Mm. Think about it. Suzanne. Mm. Suzanne. Your name sounds French, and I love the French. <laughs> Florence! You know who you are, and you know how much we appreciate what you're doing. Branna! Thanks so much, Branna. Thank you, Branna. Thank you, Branna. Melanie! You know, here's the thing. The long and the short of the Melanie. Come a long way. The long and the short, the Mel and the Melanie. That is what I'm saying. And you've done a great job, and we appreciate it so much. Sabrina! You're more than a... TV show to us. Yeah, it's true. Thank you, Patreon subscribers. This week. Thank you guys so much. If you would like a shout out or a postcard or even one of our marked up old romance novels, you can get all of this cool shit by going to our Patreon and giving us money. And helping us continue to do the good work that we're doing, which is basically doing a dissertation on a romance novel once a week. Maybe you've just like been on our Instagram and you're like, ooh, that producer, he's Mm. got some voluminous hair. He really does. How can I support that voluminous hair? Well, you can do so via our Patreon because it's not just me and Isabeau who are getting compensated for this. It is also our brilliant editor, Nick, who doesn't even listen to podcasts and doesn't even (laughs) read romance novels. He is only like a very cool person who helps us out with this project. And we want to help him out. Yeah, we want to help him out. Also, as you may have heard already, we are planning to be in New York City for... NYC for RWI! And we've got to pay for stuff there. I understand New York City is an expensive town. I have heard that as well. I've heard the very streets of New York are paved in gold. And uh, And broken dreams. And broken dreams. So (laughs) please give us your broken dreams and your gold. Cash. Our Patreon. So that we can go to... New York and knock it out of the park with the panel. Who else is going to be on the panel? Lots of folks. We're going to beat them all up at the end. (laughs) Meet us us in the alley of their romance (laughs) podcast. All right. Thank y'all so much. Really and truly from the bottom of our hearts. It means so much that anyone would even think to give a dollar to this project. Thank you so much. Thank you. who we do it for. The real romance is between you and us.
Uh. Oof. Ooh. I'm Isabel. I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About the French Revolution. About Madame la Guillotine. <laughs> about handsome British people. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> about grad school. <laughs> about mistaken identities. About Spies, espionage, intrigue! About the socio and economic political ties of England and France. And America. Yeah. But most of all, that first thing romance novels and ourselves. This week, we've got kind of a double header. We have The Secret History of the Pink Carnation by Lauren Willig, which is informed by and through the lens of The Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Orksy. You've never said that word out loud. No, that is not a word You were not said. prepared for this moment. Orksy. There is literally one vowel in that last name. Also, she was English, right? So- no, she was Austrian. Oh, yeah. I have no idea. I can tell you her whole biography if you wanted. It's actually might inform our reading. Yeah, let's talk. So you want to start with the 1905 antecedent? Is Baroness her first name or her title? Hilarious story. So she's not a Baroness. Her father was a Baron in Austria. Uh Uh-huh. And they lost the title and lands during a wave of revolution across the continent. And they end up in France and then they end up in England. And in England, she finally feels like she's at home. Her actual name is Eliza. And she marries an artist and he's middling successful but not successful enough for her and so she turns to her pen and writes The Scarlet Pimpernel as a play first and then a novel and it was a runaway success Yeah, and then she never used her first name again and was just the Baroness. It makes so much sense to me that someone from displaced aristocracy felt at home in England and then wrote The Scarlet Pimpernel. (laughs) About a different time of revolution. When was The Scarlet Pimpernel published? 1905. Originally in 1905. The play started in 1904 though, right? The play actually opened in the West End in 1897. Wow. Mm -hmm. It had a long run. So basically she like wrote a movie and then she wrote the novelization of the movie. That is what she did. Equal success. Yes. Also, fun trivia fact about the Scarlet Pimpernel. So when it actually became a movie in the 1930s, Leslie Howard, aka Ashley Wilkes, for those of us who like Gone with the Wind. Who remember it. Who remember it. Key scene they cut out of the movie, Ashley Welks putting the shoes to Scarlett O'Hara on a fence. Yeah, dude. In the rain. The choices they made for Ashley Welks, I mean, of course it makes sense in a studio context, mm-hmm. but I'm still like, man, he wasn't like... He wasn't Leslie Howard. He wasn't the guy in the movie. No. So Leslie Howard plays the Scarlet Pimpernel in 1935 and then war breaks out, World War II in 1939, and he becomes a British spy and uses his Hollywood famous actor creds to move in and about the continent and get intelligence and then dies in the war effort. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a little bit of life imitating art. It's true. So you're not the only person ostensibly in the room who got super into the Scarlet Pimpernel. The heroine of <laughs> the secret history of the Pink Carnation got super into it and understand in the universe of this novel, the Scarlet Pimpernel is historical Real. fact. Mm-hmm. Why 
why do you like the Scarlet Pimpernel? I'm really glad that you asked that question. I would like to cast us back in time <laughs> to a lonely, awkward eighth grade Isabeau who had a long summer in Shawano, Wisconsin. And strangely enough, the rural town of less than 6,000 people had a really good public library with an excellent old book section. And There is always a good public library. I haven't found that to be true of all of my sojourns, mostly in Missouri. Like there was one good public library and that was it. This sounds like a Missouri this problem. This is a Missouri problem. <laughs> Wisconsin has great public libraries. Anyway, the librarian and I became very good friends. She I recommended... Do have one quick question for sure. clarification. Was it an actually especially long summer due to some scheduling issues with the public school system or did it just feel like a long summer? Oh, it felt like an interminable. Okay. I think like my friends like went to camp. Was and, it like, between 8th grade and ninth grade? It was. So it's like that summer of change too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I am in the stacks and the very nice librarian friend comes over to me and she's like, you've been checking out these other books. I think you would really like this one. Based what on were the other interest. books? Well, if we had the world enough in time, Morgan. Giving two. Ellsworth Thane, Riders of the Wind, published in 1933. And Gene Stratton Porter, who is really important in the Americas from 1909 to like 1920. So that's where I'm at. I'm like very much reading early 20th, 20th century. Uh, so she recommends The Scarlet Pimpernel. It's this beautiful illustrated edition. I immediately fell passionately in love with this book. I think because it was a heady summer, I read it like four times before I returned it and then I like renewed it and then I watched the BBC adaptation and then I watched the 1930s adaptation. Then I read it again. Like I fell so hard for Sir Percy Blakeney. Percy was the number one name for both a male child and female child that I would have Percy being short for Persephone or Percy being short for but why did you like it so like what do you like about the book it's exciting right it's cinematic like things happen quickly Percy is funny but also like at a massive remove I think like the backdrop of the French Revolution was fascinating to me but it's also like the revolution itself is just a backdrop it's a prop at best that's not the thing I've thought a lot about this and like why Percy and Marguerite and I think it was like it was that special magic of here is truly a romance capital R like in the early 20th century mode of romantic novels and here's a story that isn't about the couple getting together it's the couples already together but they fucked it up and I think that was new in terms of like stuff that I was reading but also something that I think I was secretly hungry for and like not to get like super into it but like I think you know I was having questions about relationships and like the nature of love and like you know most of the marriages that I was privy to weren't what I thought I would want to end up with. Getting more complicated as you got older. Right. And like my perception of yeah. them, my viewing of them, like it was really, really complicated. So I think at, at that moment I was hungry for a narrativization of a marriage that was going through a rough patch. But like ultimately I was safe as a reader knowing that they'd end up together. Yeah. And that's exactly what the Scarlet Pimpernel delivers. Mm-hmm. And I think like in that way I love it so much. <laughs> and like revisiting it, especially then through the lens of the secret history of the Pink Carnation was bonkers. And like I'm perfectly happy saying that I avoided this book. Like people right. bought this book for me and I didn't read it. Yeah. Because I was like, it's not the original. I discovered it on my own prior to us starting this podcast and told you about it and you were like, absolutely not. <laughs> that is definitely my reaction. So I'm glad that we finally got here. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear your reasons for liking it because I wasn't that impressed. That's fine. Like reading 
watching it as an adult was like a much different experience. Yeah, I want to know like your reasons. Like, did anything fall apart for you? Like, did anything kind of come undone? Lots of things came undone, which didn't feel good. We've got early 20th century white landed gentry lady talking about issues. Issues. And also race in a way that's repugnant. Oh my God. Yeah. That chapter's hard. That chapter was hard at 14 too, though. And like, I remember talking to my parents about how much I love this book. Obviously, this obsession was pretty intense. And I told them about the chapter that I'm sure we'll get into. My mom was like, well, that makes sense. She's Austrian. I was like, oh. That's true. Ouch. I don't really want to take the Scarlet Pimpernel chapter by chapter. I don't want to go in depth on it. Okay. I think it's, I think it's a useful frame. It is a useful frame and it it made me understand this book that I read before reading The Scarlet Pimpernel in like a clearer context. But yeah, I just, I was pretty bored by it. I found I could skip around a lot. I think it like lingered places strangely. I don't feel like the romance was one where like they married for love and Mm -hmm. then they lost their way. She explicitly says she got married to be adored Mm -hmm. and then he didn't adore her the way she wanted and Mm -hmm. so she she was bored all the time and started to resent him as Me. one would. No, it literally says the resentment as one does with a pet or a long time hired servant. servant. Yeah, no, it literally says that. Good natured resentment is what it says. But I mean, the reason why she's upset is because like broad strokes, Marguerite is a Republican from France. She is on board with the revolution to a point and then the reign of terror happens and she's no longer on board. Mary Sir Percy, the wealthy man in England who's also rumored to be the most foolish fop in all of England as well. And she does this thing right before they get married where she condemns an entire family to the guillotine and she feels really bad about it because she's actually tricked into it. But like the thing that fucks up their marriage is that like they get married and then she confesses the next day and baldly confesses. Like doesn't give any exonerating circumstances or any of her reasoning and just expects Percy's adoration and like love of her to carry it through and like he can't right that's a crazy ask yeah it just seems like he's not fully committed to his front in that case yeah he's not which makes him a bad spy well that's why he's the first one revealed in the secret history of the pink carnation yeah (laughs) and then murdered he uh he uh, not murdered I mean not murdered he's the first one out of the game right I feel like there's so much classic literature that's problematic that's worth kind of going to bat for and being like this is why it's good and this is why it's worthwhile and this is why it's worth seeing past all that other stuff. And I couldn't find it in the Scarlet Pimpernel. I do think it's important that like something kind of pleasurable and pulpy like this and honestly pulpy yeah. like carried through. But there's so much political shit happening like repugnant political shit happening in this book. The utter villainization of the French Revolution and the fact that like Marguerite is seen as like this okay person because she was a Republican but she like somehow felt that like bloodshed would be unnecessary which is a ridiculous idea whenever you're overthrowing an aristocracy Mm -hmm. who's demanded nothing but blood. Right. Um, It idolizes... (laughs) <laughs> the British to a point like that was that is obviously difficult for me I was wondering if that would be a thing for you upon reading it as an adult the lionization of the British physique 
I found crazy. Absurd! <laughs> Absurd. Like, all the British dudes are like six foot three, handsome, athletic, sporting men. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Andrew Fox has never gone anywhere in his life and plays chess and like has like a concave chest. It was really interesting. But I guess it kind of speaks to like what it means to be a cultural superpower yeah, and like dude. how you can control the narrative. So prior to the 1920s, the U.S. enters World War One at long last. And then through this kind of tumultuous period of the 1920s and 1930s, by the 1940s emerges as the cultural superpower. And I was listening to this podcast called Dressed about the history of fashion. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about the American look and they talked about how in French Vogue, they talked about how European women couldn't get the same faces as American women because we were constantly facing intense winds through the skyscrapers <sighs> that pulled our faces taut and that the sun was brighter and that we were sportier. And that's why we were all taller and like more athletic looking. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the athleticism of the British, I mean, like at the end of the day, they don't have as many Olympic medals as us. So we're oh, the Canadians. Or like any of their colonies. I know. I was just about to say their former colonies. <laughs> but in Percy, like I saw a lot of what, you know, I encounter in more contemporary romance, like a tall aristocracy who like cares about things beyond his lands, but also deeply cares about his lands, loves his woman really good, but like is also a prideful ass and yeah. like all those things. As a 14 year old, this was the bee's knees for me. And like rereading it as an adult, I was like, oof, there's some really confusing stuff in here. It was just prior to discovering romance novels, like the genre. It was probably in about that same summer. They were pretty close. Like I got the Scarlet Pimpernel and I was reading like Elles with Thane and stuff. And then I migrated into Kathleen Woodaweiss. So this text, which one? Scarlet Pimpernel. If you go on the Wikipedia page, they have like pop culture references. They're almost entirely English. That makes sense. This was not a book I was familiar with. I had to Google it when I was reading The Secret History of the Pink Carnation. That makes sense to me. I was the first person to check out my illustrated copy in a long ass time. The fact that it came out in like 1897 as a play and then 1905 as a novel like speaks very directly to an ascendant superpower that's like really marshalling and I mean marshal in the military sense its strength in that moment. Like all of this stuff about like the British being sporting. At one point one of the people in the league is asked like well why do you do this? Why do you risk your life to save the French aristocracy? And he's like because it's great fun. Zounds. Oh yeah it's exactly this like before World War One ended up being the shit Shit that it was. Yeah exactly. It's very Edwardian in that sense. It had a lot of cachet in its moment. Yeah. It was popular because it was lionizing the British in a particular way. It was lionizing aristocracy. It was keeping the idea that noblesse oblige was alive and well. Yeah, yeah. Noblesse oblige is alive and well. And furthermore, like the idea of life and death is very ephemeral, which is an absurdly privileged point of view that could only come from an aristocracy that was as powerful as it was prior to World War One. And it's weird that she was writing about aristocracy that like had already gone through a massive decline at the rise of the Industrial Revolution and then a revitalization with American money at the time of her writing of this when she's really talking about an aristocracy at the height of its power in the Georgian period pre-Regency pre-Napoleon yeah it's uh, all of my least favorite things <laughs> and yet I love the secret history of the pink carnation yeah I want to start off by talking about the cover it's a great cover all the real... covers of this series are really good yeah this is a real cover mm-hmm. it's got two different textures mm-hmm. it's got an actual work of art that they licensed it's got an electric pink color mm-hmm. carried through pop 
yeah, and a woman in a beautiful Georgian dress, which would not have been period appropriate because we were out of the Georgian area and into the Napoleonic when she was writing. It's a great cover. It's a great cover. It's the kind of cover that you would feel fine reading openly. Openly, yeah. So The Pink Carnation, why don't you tell us what it's about? So The Pink Carnation is a book told in frame. So our outside frame is a historian from Harvard named Eloise. And she's convinced her dissertation committee that she needs to spend a year in London finding the secret history of The Pink Carnation because the Scarlet Pimpernel has been named as has the Purple Gentian, another British flower. Uh, Spy was also named. And there's only one who has never figured out and it's the secret of the pink carnation so she goes and she sends out these query letters to the named nobility that have heirs still alive and she gets rejected by all but one and she shows up at this beautiful London flat with a beautifully attired older woman and the woman says open up this trunk you can have all the papers and it's like a historian's dream right you open up a trunk and here in like perfect sepia and there's a treasure trove of personal diaries and letters and maps and la 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 and then we're plunged immediately into Amy's story. Amy is a French refugee. Her me. her father is French. Her mother is English. Her mother takes her across the channel right before the outbreak of hostilities and the revolution. And Amy spends the next decade and more wanting to join the Scarlet Pimpernel and wanting to rescue the France yep. and restore the monarchy. And then she gets herself back there with her trusty cousin, Jane. Uh-huh. And their governess, Miss Gwen. And along the way, they meet the actual purple gentian. Gentian? Gentian. Somebody's going to correct us. Because the Scarlet Pimpernel, by this point, it's 1804, has been unmasked. Uh huh. So she has to join the Purple Gentians League as they cross the channel to find her wayward brother, who uh-huh. is part of Napoleon's court. And then we're in Paris with mm-hmm. Napoleon. Yep. And hijinks ensue. Does she end up in league with the Purple Gentian? Who is our hero? Well, like, again, here, like, several questions that's told in frame, right? So let's talk about the hero in the historic story, the letters that Eloise is reading. Richard Selwick. Richard Selwick is her hero. Mm-hmm. He is the Purple Gentian, which we know pretty much off the bat. Uh-huh. He is hiding in plain sight in Napoleon's court as the curator of Egyptian antiquities. Yes. Uh, so he, because Napoleon, as you may know, was obsessed with antiquities. <laughs> Not unlike- as you may know, if you read another one of the books that we covered. Indeed. Which was called, shit, I just forgot. Egypting across Egypt. Mr. Impossible by Loretta Chase. You read Mr. Impossible by Loretta Chase. You already know this. You already know this. But also, dictators of Europe fucking love Egypt for like reasons. They fight over it. Yeah. Hitler also loved Egypt. Well, it was like the super powerful civilization. Yeah. They just wanted all the things. Anyway, so Napoleon has this British dude who apparently loves antiquities and is like, cool, you're British. I guess your politics don't matter to you more than antiquities. You can stay in the Tuileries with me and tell me about Egypt shit. So Richard Selwick, our hero, has the perfect cover and he's gone back home where his parents are like you need to get married and he's like I got an important job to do mom and dad and they're like we know dear but we really want to see you settled with someone nice and he's like whatever mom gonna go back and save England from French invasion and so he gets on a packet in Dover where we meet Amy her cousin Jane and their governess Miss Gwen we're all sailing to Paris 
Paris. And Amy and Richard have an immediate dislike of one another, which of is course. always a good sign. She hates that he's a traitor. And he's like, academics is above mere politics. Wah, wah, wah. And she's like, my dad died on a guillotine, Richard. And he's like, oh, <laughs> now I feel bad. He's better at his cover than the actual Scarlet Pimpernel, which is probably why he wasn't revealed immediately. <laughs> this Pimpernel rescued like scores of people. The Scarlet Pimpernel wasn't real. I think you're going to have to repeat that more than once for me. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> We're on the packet to England. A packet. I what also a funny love word for a boat. I love it. I'm only going to use that in terms of boats that I just, fit like uh, 20 people. I just imagine like a very thick manila envelope floating <laughs> on the water. From Dover to Calais. <laughs> Here's your packet. Eloise is reading these letters in modern London. And Anne walks. A very haughty gentleman indeed. Who's like, don't read those. It's like, you can't read those. Those belong to my family. Yeah. Mur, mur, mur. Aunt Arabella let you what? His name is Colin Selwick. <laughs> and he wrote her a really mean letter. He did. That she quotes at him verbatim. Uh-huh. And makes him feel bad. I was reminded listening to NPR the other day. They were doing an episode about Southernisms. Mm. And it really struck me because I literally used it that morning. And I didn't realize like it was a Southernism. What? Saying, I know you. <laughs> To someone who's like introducing themselves to you. And the phrase means, I know you because you were horrible to me, but you don't know me because you're horrible to everyone. Oh. That's what I know you means in the South. Interesting. And that was very much whenever she calls him out. Yeah, totally. It was a good call out scene, like no holds barred. She's giving him this dressing down, not only to his face, which is awesome. Giving him the business. But also in front of who she presumes is his girlfriend, which was also like bold move, Eloise. His girlfriend, who looks like icy aristocracy of mm-hmm. today. Indeed. I was basically imagining Kate Middleton. I was imagining Catherine Bissett Kennedy. Mm. Caroline Bissett Kennedy. That seems right. Anyway, turns out, not his girlfriend. It was his sister. Oh! Zing, zing, this zing. This happens a lot. People thinking siblings are fucking. Yeah, it's weird. I think Game of Thrones has really done a number it's on like, all of I our did, consciousnesses. I just think it's like, read the room. <laughs> But yeah, that's actually really interesting because like she has further evidence later in the book that Colin is caring for his girlfriend and not his sister when like his sister's clearly not drunk but pregnant at a party. (laughs) And like, you know, he takes her by the shoulder and is like, are you okay? And she's like, oh God, I wish a man would end whatever conversation he were having and come rescue me from feeling bad. And I was like, he's a good big brother. Like there are other ways in which men can relate to women that isn't just fucking them. But also that isn't just being related to them. I'm so sick of men being like, I was raised by my mother or I have sisters or I have daughters and I get it. I get it. It's like, Mm -hmm. you don't have to have that direct connection. No, you can be like, oh, human being in pain? Let me help you. Human being is a human being. Yeah. Anyway, but that was pretty much my mode with Eloise. You know, Morgan, I like to be catered to in general. I like it when people are like, oh, check in Isabeau's boxes. But I did not like it in this book. It's literally all of my boxes. It's historic. It's got a plucky heroine. It's got two plucky heroines for the price of one. It's got, you know, mistaken <laughs> identity. It's got masks 
I love masks, apparently. And I was like, it just took it too far. Like you said in another episode earlier where it's like, if you had four hours and a really good red pen, yeah, you could have made this a good book. And like, there were times where I was like, this joke was funny the first time I heard it. And even I'll give it a second time. Yeah. But by the time I heard it the seventh time, I'm like, what are you doing? One of the main things I liked about this book and what I remember about this book is how shitty the heroine's life is as a grad student. Her life is very shitty as a grad student. Her terrible apartment. Yep. She hates London. She does. She has to deal with like this really, and I say deal with, and I mean it. I rethought it for a moment there, but no, I mean deal with like a really enigmatic, bubbly friend who's good at amassing capital without amassing actual cash. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, her friend works in PR and like just like arrives at like a Gucci party and just like arrives at a Chanel party and like has like hacked the London system where she's like, she's not a hangers on because she's not hanging on. Yeah. But like she knows where the party's at and like how to get the free champagne and also who to schmooze and how to schmooze. But also she doesn't really belong. Yeah. And then she brings a plus one. Yeah. Which is a heinous place to be. Have you ever been that? The plus one for someone who's like barely made it past the door? Yeah, it was terrible. It's a rough place to be. It's a rough place to be. And that's where Eloise lives. Yeah, dude. Also her like longtime boyfriend cheated on her with an art historian. Yeah. In the coat room of the faculty party, which seemed real mean. And exactly. And I can't remember anything in particular about what the heroine looks like. She has red hair. But I like don't feel like she's overwhelmingly beautiful. I feel like our hero, which by the way, they don't have a happily ever after. Yet. Yet. This is a 12 book series. Yeah. They don't have a happily ever after yet. But he starts to feel attracted to her, not when he meets her, but when she starts speaking to him. About his family history. Yeah. Which I think is riveting and refreshing. There's like a scene where oh, the pink carnation gets fingered in a boat. Oh my god, that scene was crazy. Purplegation. Yeah. God. That scene was crazy. It also like, and it I- I know what out of it? nowhere. Yeah, there's like an old boat gap. Yeah, just literally like there. The room with I them. was like, this environment is not conducive. Like she almost like fell into the Seine River herself. And it's like, there's like, they're out in the open. They've also just had this fight. Oh, they I'm, ran like, through the Spanish, uh, where? The Latin Quarter. The Latin Quarter. They just ran through there where Notre Dame is. Yeah. yeah. By the way, if you have money to give to Notre Dame, please give it to literally anything else. Literally. Literally. Literally anything else. There are a bunch of churches that were burned in Louisiana. Black churches that were burned in Louisiana. And if we have short memories or long memories, there are still churches in Mexico that are trying to recover from that massive earthquake two years ago. There are still churches in Puerto Rico. Yeah. You know what? I think the churches are kind of a low priority there. Why don't you <laughs> give them money to get their electricity back on? Yeah. God, it made me mad. It raised $2 billion. And at first I was like, okay, you know, if people people want to give like two grand to like whatever and then I heard two billion dollars do you know how many problems in the world could be completely rectified with two billion dollars yeah several of the people who came out with like 600 million dollars or more donations were doing it to avoid french taxes which the yellow vest protests have been protesting for the last six weeks get fucking serious That building has been around for, listen. 893 years. Your 14-year-old cat dies. It's sad, but it's also time for the cat. (laughs) Are you saying it was Notre Dame Someone needed to put Notre Dame out of its misery. Wow. (laughs) It was already getting repaired. Jesus. It wasn't. They're like, just let it go. 
let people into it to like okay no I have been in Notre Dame I understand and like a lot it is a lot it was cultural significant moving experience to just be in the space and look around it is an experience of shape and form and light to think of its age only enhances that experience but two billion dollars are you shitting me yeah I mean walruses are throwing themselves to their deaths right now because we can't fucking figure out climate change yeah 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 dude i know yes 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 also give that money to our patreon (laughs) we're fucked you know you want to talk about something burnt out on the inside Look no further than your noble host, Isabeau and Morgan. If you want to help repair something, give us money. We'll send you a book. We will. Notre Dame ain't sending you shit. The Catholic Church does not give a fuck. The Catholic Church is going to use at least part of that money to protect child molesters. Oh, yeah. The Vatican That's is also the shit. richest country on the planet. That's real shit. That is oh, real my shit. God. That's who you gave money to. Ugh. Yeah, Paris obsessions. I'm really glad no one was hurt in that fire, though. Yeah, that's really great. No, that's yeah, good. the podcast that I never name but always reference said, "There is nothing in that church that is worth more than one human life," and that's true. That is true. What I found really fascinating is my news podcast that I listen to religiously mentioned it in the headlines. Listen to religiously? I do. <laughs> 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 uh, mentioned it in the headlines. One sentence. Notre Dame caught fire. They think it's uh, restoration fire, not terrorism. And most of the important relics were already removed and then moved immediately into Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and the Mueller report. Yeah. And I was like, that is correct. And it also, is a news item, but not the most important one. No. Think about all the food that gets thrown away. Mm. And keep in mind that there are children starving to death. Yeah. And then think twice before you give $2 billion to the Catholic Church yeah. to rebuild build a building mm-hmm. also if you're upset about fires what about like the fire that took out brazil's national archives yeah why is that wh- no, why is quickly. one fire more important than the other fires i mean you know why i know why i just hope other people know why i hope other people before they give money to notre dame took a minute to think about all of the other things do you know what frankly Hmm. frankly my dear donating money to the catholic church as a non-catholic person your money could have been better spent buying a chocolate bar for yourself i believe that i believe that i get we've got cool pope now he's not even that cool but he's not even that cool yeah he like walked back to his really awesome statements about the lgbtq community and like he's not not hammered at home for women or poor people frankly and he's not really on board with the sex scandal either or the fact that like nuns have finally come out and said that they've been sexually assaulted for thousands of years he's half-assing everything and because you've just been so traumatized traumatized by other popes one of which was a former nazi youth yeah ratzinger was his last name before he ascended to the papacy ratzinger okay his last name was ratzinger but actually he was a really cool guy no he was a former nazi and he looked like emperor palpatine looks like a former Nazi would. Yeah, exactly. He came out of the cave he'd been hiding in in South America, (laughs) developing blonde-headed super soldiers to ascend to the papacy. Get serious. (laughs) You gave them $2 billion. Also, have none of you seen the Disney?
crazy version of the Hunchback of Notre Dame because then you should know that Frollo, as an advocate of the church, is not someone that you want to be around. He's not cool. It's not, not a good scene for not, Quasimodo not in there. Someone brought up they were like they were talking about how the Hunchback of Notre Dame reached the number one bestseller spot in Amazon in France, uh-huh. and how it was initially written by Victor Hugo as mm-hmm. part of like an early restoration project for Notre Dame and how it funded that. And they talk about like how the hunchback is the metaphor for the building. And I was like, okay, ninth grade English. <laughs> like, it's not cute. Notre Dame does not come out looking like a rose. Mm-mm. It does in um, the cartoon version because of the whimsical talking gargoyles. The whimsical talking gargoyles are really great. But also like the thing that I remember most from that film is like the eyes of Notre Dame. Like you, you can hide from yourself, but you can't hide from the eyes of Notre Dame. And I was like, that shit is going to stay with me. I am a little turned on by Frollo's scary song. <sighs> Hellfire. Mm-hmm. She can have me or she can have the fire. Hellfire. Yeah, it's a sexy song. And the fact that she's dancing naked in it and you can see her nipples. You I was like, whoa. Nipples. He's so horny. He wants her so bad. He smells her hair at points. Mm-hmm. And I'm like. And then her scarf. Yeah, God. Like panties, like dirty panties. Mm-hmm. Like Joe Tom Biden. Pulse. It's a really good Disney movie. I think it's highly underrated. It is. When I was growing up, I was like, Hercules is highly underrated. Hunchback of Notre Dame is highly underrated. And then once I became like 25, suddenly like there were BuzzFeed lists that are like 82 reasons. Hercules is the best Disney movie and I was like oh yeah we all thought that it's just now we have jobs where we can control the culture that's true I really like Hercules there's a time in my life where I used to listen to his song to get pumped up and or cry go the distance yeah you know Chicago always aspired to be Paris and the other day I was on it's got the, a river I was on the phone with someone well it's also like how we designed our CTA system like we always envisioned there being like an outer loop mm-hmm. Paris has the best train system the metro is so easy to navigate and yeah. like very handy I think Chicago is close but we don't have that super loop that would complete the the final piece of the puzzle I was talking to someone on the phone and I was like yeah so we have these neighborhoods and they're like what is that is that a suburb and I was like no it's part of the city there's like the downtown loop area that's central and then all these neighborhoods kind of spiral out and they all have their own interesting cultural identities and she was like I guess I just don't want to go that far out and I was like no it's not that far out it's very much part of the city it's we're a city of neighborhoods and she's like I and I was like it's like Paris (laughs) or like any other major metropolitan city have you read a book (laughs) Paris fascination. Francophiles. Francophiles. I mean, in the romance genre, I feel like I don't see a lot of France stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like mostly like London hard-ons, but it was interesting to read a fascination of Paris that's couched almost entirely in like mystery and danger, mm-hmm. right? Like the corners of Paris are very dark and there are people who want to hurt you. And but like, you're all part of this hilarious game of like overthrowing Napoleon and like the Tuileries are beautiful and like French women are loose is like such a weird fucking thing that like comes up in these books. Yeah. And it was like, cool. They're sexually in charge of themselves. Not really, but, but yeah. More so than like Amy or like any of the other characters. Well, Ms. they're Gwen. sexually exploited rather than sexually repressed. Yeah. It just depends on your yeah. perception. But it is refreshing to read something that's interested in a country besides England. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about the English shit that is constantly poured down your throat. Yeah. Yeah, down the gullet. And also, 
also it's not like they go anywhere interesting in London no it's the same places it's like Hyde Park and the major pavilion depends on which era we're in but we're usually yeah. in the Regency period so the Scarlet Pimpernel goes to lots of different places not unlike like a Kathleen Woodywist but they're all interesting and they mm-hmm. all feel fully formed and they don't feel like bah, that bah, bah. Mm-hmm. doesn't feel like zip zap zop it feels really thought out it makes sense and like the choices and like where you're going and like how you're getting away and she takes care with like the historical relevancy I think a lot of times reading historical romance you get all of this shading from the current experience of places Mm -hmm. that informs how they write about the historicism of places whereas I feel like the Latin Quarter felt particular to the time that we were there in Mm -hmm. because if you go to the Latin Quarter today it feels almost like a college town it was obviously my favorite place to go for sure but it doesn't feel like that in this book it feels like a little bit dangerous a little bit off the beaten track you Mm -hmm. know which it would have been at that time it would have been yeah what was interesting to me about the secret history of the pink carnation is that like herein is another book where the skeleton really became obvious to me pretty much off the bat where like here's a young writer who's using a particular kind of device that becomes less and less important to the way the plot is moving over time and it's interesting to me to watch how that happens we really really lose Eloise and Colin for a huge stretch in the middle. Yeah. Like we're just like solidly in yeah. Amy and Richard Selwick, the purple flower guy. The purple G. The purple G. I like that. And it was interesting <laughs> to me when we were tired of Amy and purple G and then would move back into the contemporaneous moment and then yeah. like make these like weird waves and it like and it felt like that where it's like here's an author who's tired of writing about the thing that she's writing about yeah. and like has given herself a backdoor to maneuver back into and then get excited about something again. Yeah. You know, that reminds me so much of, to bring it up again, Taika Waititi, <laughs> screenwriter, director. Welcome to the Taika Waititi podcast within a podcast. Mm-hmm. Talking Taika. Mm-hmm. But he says like, when you're writing, if you get bored, stop writing about that thing. Put your character somewhere else and then write that. Because if you're getting bored, it's likely that the readers are getting bored or the viewers in his case. And so he's like, always feel free to like, just go somewhere else. And I think the fact that she created this skeleton structure makes it a little bit obvious that she's sneaking through a back door as opposed to like just keeping things moving. Yeah. And that's what I mean where it's like this is not unlike the first couple of Harry Potters. It's interesting to me when I can see like the nuts and bolts of the thing versus like I'm actually swept away. Yeah. And I imagine that like since this is a 12 book series and I'm like I like it. That's a little over the top. Sure. And I liked it. I like it enough that I would probably check out another one. But it was interesting to me the moments where I could feel the nuts and bolts versus moments where I was swept away and like I was surprised by the moments that I felt the nuts and bolts like that sex scene in a boat which Uh felt like it should have been transporting because we're literally in a boat and like he's literally doing crazy awesome things to her body as I'm supposed to understand Yeah, but I'm like there's an old guy literally three feet from you Yeah, you're in a moving water like that is not very big and you have to fucking get her home also, going she down was a canal. A canal. And she was almost there. Like going down a canal. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> come for the books, stay for the puns. And I was like, what the 
fuck. Yeah, it's like, this is a problem I encounter, I think we encounter pretty often with romance, which is like the device that gets the people to fuck doesn't exit stage left at the right time. And the old man can't leave the boat because it's a boat. It's his boat. It's his fucking livelihood. I'm like, you could have gotten off the boat and then fingered her in an alley. That would have been hot. Or maybe you like put the old man in a sleeper hold because you don't want him to know Know you're going and who you are. And And then then you put him on the shore and then you go off in the boat. To show off your muscles. Your muscles, your guns. Just so swole. Then (laughs) then, you gotta use your guns for another type of pumping action. Gotta go the distance. Because he does finger her, right? Like I'm remembering that correctly. Here's the thing about that scene though. The anatomy of a weird sex scene. They're on a boat. She's already almost drowned. She's also Amy mistook the identity of Purple G and was called a man who she thought was Purple G to meet her in the gardens. And then he thinks that they're about to have an assignation. And she's like, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. And he's like, you're a fucking tease and I'm about to rape you. And then Purple G, Richard Selwick shows up and like beats the shit out of him. And she's like, oh, you saved me. And I'm like, ugh, least favorite device. And then they get on this boat and he notices for the first time that her dress has been ripped. And then he's like, I see red and she's like it's nothing like you arrived in time and he's like well I should check you for bruises which is how he starts fondling her breasts I'm checking you for bruises and I was like this is not the way to begin a sex scene Lauren Willig I'm not titillated because now you've like re-remembered me the fucking (laughs) sexual assault in the garden her dress is torn she's in the water and now there's a man taking advantage of her being like I'm gonna check you for bruises. Also, you're not even looking for bruises like with your hands. There's no light. Yeah, like what are you (laughs) checking for? And like the idea that that would be like an acceptable device between the characters like if he's truly noble and she's truly chaste or whatever, which the whole success of this idea hinges on. They wouldn't do that. Yeah. Eye roll that you can't see. I just uh, boo. Boo, boo, boo. I agree. Isabeau, if you were a spy Mm -hmm. in the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel, Mm -hmm. what would your code name be? Mm. Are lilacs a new world flower? I don't think it matters. Then I would be the lavender lilac. Two flowers Mm -hmm. in one. Mm -hmm. Lavender lilac. Mm -hmm. What would you be, Morgan? I would be i think i would be a carnation i'm a little upset really it's like a real loud flower that's also everywhere mm-hmm. kind of basic that's why i would have said daffodil daffodil oh because you're so sunny sweet of you oh my god it's <laughs> so nice you're so good at saying nice things i want to be the daffodil yeah now. you're gonna be the daffodil you come up in the spring you come up in bunches you're a perennial i'm perennial yeah I would be the pink pansy (laughs) anyway secret secret pink carnation's not a man pink carnation got her pink carnation stuck by the (laughs) purplegation on a fucking boat yeah she's an old man watching also he's watching yeah and like bumps him with an oar before he can unbuckle his britches like you're gonna fuck a virgin on a boat in the sun in front of a stranger you're a bad person you're no Percy Blakeney Percy Blakeney sucks. Whatever. I love him so much. Percy blows. (laughs) I love him so much.
He does blow, though. Mm. Blows Margot. Actually, I would say the hottest part of that sex scene is when he starts to unbutton his trousers. And I was like, he is no gentleman. Yeah. But in a way that is like, to me, I'm like, you're no gentleman. As opposed to like feeling you for bruises, which is like, you are no gentleman. Yeah. And like, that's the turn. Like, I like it when he's dressed as Zorro. That's the other thing about the Lauren Willig that is trading on a particular kind of trope that's winking at it in a way that I found catering to my particular picadillos almost too much where she's like it's like he's Zorro and he's Robin Hood all wrapped in one and I'm like okay but also then like also Batman because he's always dressed in black has a cape and wears a mask the other thing that I think was actually interesting and redemptive about the Scarlet Pimpernel is that when I was reading it, I was like god this is so cliche it's like obviously the big dumb ox who's secretly the international super spy I was like oh shit in 1897 this was probably the first time that the idea of dual identity like a Clark Kent existed and it created this new idea yeah so whereas it's actually kind of witty and interesting in the Scarlet Scarlet Pimpernel, it comes across as like really tired in The Pink Carnation. And I don't think she adds anything to this idea of a dual identity because he is just like a full on like nerd. Yeah. Well, actually. In the antiquities of the fourth kingdom of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, that could have been something really fun to play with. And I think yeah. you're so right. Like in 1897 and 1905, like that was new. Yeah. And like to have like a big also then be like tactically brilliant mind yeah was like and a master of disguise yeah yeah the other thing is like reading the Scarlet Pimpernel and hearing about his disguises hearing that this guy kind of just dresses like Zorro kind of sucks yeah Blakeney's like dressing as women he's dressing as all sorts of problematic things like he's yeah. like all over the board and Amy is interested in disguise yeah she loves a really disguises. cool job and it was one of the more interesting parts of the character yeah is that she does this cool stuff with makeup but like our actual hero it's kind of a snooze. Kind of a snooze. I guess that's why this book isn't called The Purple G. That makes sense. And like the moments that I was most enraptured and like also felt like the most tenderness for this book, The Pink Carnation, were the moments between Jane and Amy. It's like Amy's mm. like headlong. She's like, I've got plan A through G and G's terrible, which is why it's last. And I might have to move it to plan M. But A, B and C are pretty good. Here they go. Yeah. And Jane's like, well, let's take a step back. And like their dynamic was so good and like such a really good good partnership but also like a good version of like two women who truly support one another and then like having uh, Miss Gwen who started off much more interesting than she ended up the governess she wasn't a caricature until like two thirds of the way through and then suddenly like the parasol thing just happened too much where she's poking people and I was like I hope she gets fucked in one of the 13 books I hope so too because like why why do that to Miss Gwen though why do that to Miss Gwen and that's what I feel like happened in the last quarter of this book where it really just lost its own reins. She had to finish the book. She had to finish the book. And it showed. Yeah. Which is a bummer. It was a bummer. What was your sexiest part? Well, there are only two sex scenes and we already talked about why the boat scene is not sexy. It doesn't have to be a sex scene. That's true. Uh, My sexiest part, she finds out that Richard Selwick, the antiquitarian, is actually Purple G and she's going to punish him. But she can only really punish him for a day. She shows up at this Delarouche's office to like find something and he's there in his disguise and then they start kissing because they can't keep their hands off each other and she lets slip his actual name. And then he's like, you, knew I've been eating my heart out for myself and I was like that's a good line I like that That and that he was truly jealous of himself in like a Spider-Man type way 
Where it's like, I want in you a to Spider-Man type way. Like, I want you to fall in love with Peter Parker, yeah. not with the purple G. Oh, that's so beautiful in a Spider-Man type of way, because that is such a special thing that kind of pretty much only Spider-Man deals with. Yeah, that pretty much only Spider-Man deals with. I mean, Batman kind of gets at it mm-hmm. like Superman gets at it, but I don't think it's ever as real as it is for Peter Parker. Yeah, he's like eating his own heart out for himself. Yeah. And I love that. What was your sexy Um, I did think it was sexy whenever Richard lost the run of himself and started to unbutton his britches. That was good. And I'm willing to be like, okay, the old Frenchman has different standards. Indeed. (laughs) I mean, it's like whenever you watch Taxi Cab Confessions and people are just like getting gross in the back of taxis or if you talk to any Uber driver like or Lyft driver, like people get wild. And that comes from not understanding the humanity of the person taking you from point A to point B. Yeah. So I actually thought that was pretty sexy. I also thought it was sexy the part when they're in the museum. Mm -hmm. I like that too. And he is trying to impress her Mm -hmm. by knowing stuff about Egypt. And she's like, I don't know anything about Egypt. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty sexy. Yeah. But yeah, it's not a particularly sexy book. Mm -mm. And you think that's why it gets to be historical fiction. That isn't why I think it gets to be historical fiction. I think there are a lot of things about it. Like the fact that it's blurred by Meg Cabot and Eloisa James. Eloisa James. So Eloisa James is very much of romance. Very Meg much. Cabot is very much of chick lit. The Adirondack chairs on the beach version. Variety. Yeah. And I think if there was one more sex scene, it would be really hard for this book to dodge the way that it does. Yeah. But it does. It dodges. It dodges. But like, it's so clearly a romance novel. Like the fact that they hate each other when they meet. The fact that there's even a frame where they hate each other when they meet yeah all of the nesting dolls all of the turns of the book itself the obstacles this is like romance par excellence in a lot of ways the only thing that i think kind of pulls at those seams is the fact that there is the framing of another romance that is ongoing mm-hmm. which is really interesting like mm-hmm. an intro like a cool new trick for a romance novel mm-hmm. but it's not because the very next one in the series continues to follow eloise and colin but then follows purple g's sister henrietta and his best friend mile yeah it's like a cool new trick yeah to have multiple like an ongoing storyline and then your own encapsule storyline yeah that's historic and it's also very much like this book was published in 2005 mm-hmm. it feels very much early golden age of television mm-hmm. like the problem doesn't need to be solved within one episode yeah or within one book like this can be an ongoing storyline mm-hmm. I mean that she's clearly building right like yeah you know this is a person who's about to build a world yeah but I think you're exactly Exactly right. I think in 2005, it would be easy to use that to like dodge your cheaper cover art. And I think that's what it is. It's like, you know, in some ways, like I think that's too bad because I think it's so firmly a romance and that like the fact that it's cover art doesn't make you embarrassed to read it on public transit, like says a particular thing about lots of things, including like capital. Yeah. Capital. Cover art is capital. And we don't think about that enough. We don't. Like I understand the ideas behind branding and like we've got to make this legible to people like this is the book you're looking for this is a romance novel but there's something like creatively hindering about that and also if you're going to be a romance novel why not be the full-on early 90s up to early 90s romance novel why not get a painted cover like the lack of investment in these books is making the genre almost feel more factory like than Mm -hmm. it ever has before for me like when I think about it if you look back on like the covers that were created for Kathleen Woodywiss and J. 
Joanna Lindsay and Caroline Brandy, Caroline Brandy, Danielle Steele, like these beautiful hand-painted covers. And you kind of get the same thing with um, Beverly Jenkins, Mm -hmm. who has the best covers in the game as far as I'm concerned. But like the average romance novelist who even gets picked up by like an Avon is not getting that treatment. They're getting fucking parts models and David's bridal bridesmaids dresses. Eloisa James gets David's bridal dresses. That's very much like the in thing right now and it's like fascinating. But is it an in thing? Because I'm pretty sure everyone hates it. Mm. I mean, I'm not into it and like if you're going to have a woman alone in a dress, make it period appropriate like this Yes, one. exactly. Semi-period appropriate. Yeah. Another thing from listening to this dress podcast that now drives me crazy. I'm like, That's a this dress, dress is as far away mm. from what it should actually be as I am from this dress. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it's a matter of centuries, not yeah. two weeks. I know. Also, like, hairstyles. Like, I don't know why. Like, I don't want to get super hung up on details, but I'm like, the particular kind of bun that's very popular yeah. in romance covers, a the tremble messy down. bun. I'm like, that is so 2003. That's what Kate and Lost was wearing, okay? Yeah, it is. It's deeply upsetting. Yeah. What was the weirdest part of the secret history of the pink carnation for you? The weirdest part for me was I don't understand and probably won't until I read more books why Aunt Arabella said yes and I was like here's a treasure trove of all of my stuff like she never explains why she says like you can have it and then Eloise is told by Colin that she can't have it for her dissertation so then she just gets to know the secret and I'm like as an academic like that would be torture. Devastating. Yeah. More than torture. Yeah it's like I also don't understand how that plot device is working like it was never explained. It's it's almost like the ultimate cruelty. Yeah it's just like super duper mean so now she gets to know and do nothing with it when it could literally change her life for the better also like history yeah she's not doing it just for her own betterment it is for the greater knowledge of the world right and why keep it a secret why keep it in this very nice and well protected trunk there's also like no clarification on that literally none yeah and I was like this is fucking weird and also (laughs) could have a pretty easy explanation yeah where it's like we do this because like we were told it's like a family secret or we're only gonna release it give me two sentences Even if it's an excuse, (laughs) give me a fucking reason. Yeah. That was my weirdest part. My weirdest part was probably that and the old man watching them get fingered. But also, there's not enough Colin and Eloise. I think they're a really compelling couple. And you're right. There are hundreds of pages without them. Yeah. I was surprised by that, by the lack of the use of the frame. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting idea to have an ongoing storyline that frames your series. Mm -hmm. But I definitely finished this book and wanted to know more about Eloise and Colin, but not enough to like read another book, you know? Because you... I wasn't given enough. Yeah. You would have gotten 100 pages of Eloise and Colin and like 400 of Miles and Henrietta. It didn't seem worth it. It was like when I go onto YouTube now and just watch the makeover episodes of America's Next Top Model and I'm like oh wow I'm glad all these seasons have ended so I can now just watch this compilation which is the one that you want like I just want the book about Eloise and Colin yeah but I don't know if it works without the sandwich meat maybe maybe what was the sexiest part of the Scarlet Pimpernel (laughs) I did not find it to be a sexy (sighs) book I was genuinely disturbed by the whole thing. Well, yeah. I just think there was this never-ending 
adulation of aristocracy mm-hmm. that was deeply disturbing and like a belief in hierarchies of all kind racial gender my sexiest bit is when they're coming back from the ball and they're not talking and they're riding on the top box of the carriage and she's just like slightly leaning into him and just like riding all the way down from London to Richmond with the wind in her face thinking about all the bad things that she's done she's just like it's hard to human I'm like yeah Marguerite also not a sexy part it is <laughs> why is it sexy it's sexy in the sumptuousness and like I was thinking about this a lot today because like well, things can be sensual but that's different from being sexy right and the sexy part of it for me and like this is a very typical Isabeau sexy moment where it's like she feels bad about helping Chauvelin the French operative unmask the Pimpernel at the ball and she like has this like effusive moment at the top of the carriage with Percy next to her where they're not speaking they have this hour-long drive at three o'clock in the morning with his carriage and four. She doesn't need to talk to him and can't really talk to him over the sound of the wind rushing by them anyway. And she doesn't need to. And she just leans ever so much into him. And like to go all the way back to the top of the episode where it's like the thing that I think brought me to this was like I was hungry to see narrativizations of marriages and like work it out in a more intimate way than like I could ask questions of people that I knew that were married at the time. And like there was a moment where it's like here are two people who were clearly unhappy with one another and yet they can share this like very nice thing that they both still enjoy separately but they can also enjoy it together and like that's sexy really they can put the thing that is hurting each other away just for this 55 minutes and like she's in furs it was sexy sad sexy disagree (laughs) (laughs) so that is it for the Scarlet Pimpernel and the secret history of the pink carnation Scarlet Pimpernel womance or nomance for you OG womance nomance for me I do not believe it is a romance secret history of the pink carnation no man's or romance it's weird because like I feel this book was specifically written for me and I yeah. still didn't like it as much as I wanted to no man's yeah it's a no man's for me actually I mean I really liked it and I talk about it a lot but I don't think like if you want a romance don't read this Mm-mm. although I think it's a romance it is a romance novel I don't think it does the romance novel things very well but I do wish romance novels could get public domain artwork like this and do something interesting with it me too bam bam with that loosen your secret spy masks but never your principles Indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>